Welcome back. I'm Peter Wood, and I'm the author of Mud Between Your Toes, a Rhodesian farm, which is a memoir about my life growing up in Zimbabwe, or formerly Rhodesia, in the 1960s and 70s. This is a podcast about family, independence, loss, and above all, identity. Hello, today I have a very special guest speaking to me from Bermuda. Matt Arnold grew up in the farming town of Macheki, east of Harare. Matt's lived a colorful life, and I'm delighted to share his story with you. So Matt Arnold, welcome to Conversations with Pete Wood. Thank you very much, Pete. Hey, listen, Matt, Bermuda, how on earth did you get there? You must be, I think you must be my biggest West Indies fan. Yeah, uh, I was working in the UK and came across a man who had worked in Bermuda at the job that I now currently do, or, or did, I've just retired actually. And uh, on the same day I saw an adver advertisement in the British Medical Journal for an anaesthetist in Bermuda, and I thought, well, let's give it a go. And seven weeks later, believe it or not, here we were in Bermuda with two young kids, and uh, I'm sure you're going to ask about the triangle. So just to let you know, <laughs> when you become a citizen of Bermuda, you have to sign this document to say you will never talk about the triangle. No, really? Okay. It, but, uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> and, and so you went there uh, to, do, to work as an anaesthetist then, yeah? I did, yes. And uh, I came out on a one-year contract. Um, that was in 1987, so... And just didn't things, leave, things not surprising. I fell in love with Bermuda, and I believe Bermuda fell in love with me. Um, I can but, say that because low self-esteem has never been an issue that I've been burdened with, so <laughs> they love me, I love them. <laughs> but, but, so you, you actually grew up in Macheki, which uh, for the listeners, that's the Marandera district, which is east of Harare. Um, you're a little older than me, not that, not that much, but you must have experienced the country in its heyday. So tell us about your early life. I don't know, perhaps begin with your dad, with your parents. Yes, my father was an immigrant from the United Kingdom, and he went out to work in the post office in what was then southern Rhodesia. And... Uh, my mother followed out a couple of years later, and they got married. And I think the first posting they had was out in Macheki, which I think was a wonderful place to be, but uh, had some interesting um, things like outdoor toilets and uh, generators to keep the electricity going, that sort of thing, which was for, for a young couple from England was probably something new to get used to. Absolutely. This was, this was post-war, was it? Yes. Uh, I would say 1950, my father went out, I think. And um, my mother followed the year later. So they had about 10 years of, uh, well, the golden years. And then, you know, the shit hit the fan. So are your folks still with us? Uh, no, they've both passed away now. And, uh, you know, I'd like to dedicate this chit-chat to them because you know they were the, such a great influence in my life and the life of many people my brothers and sisters 
And uh, my father being very well known in the community, wherever he lived and worked, he was not one to stand by and watch things happen. He helped things along in all ways. So yeah, I'd like to dedicate it to them. Absolutely. And being the postmaster, I reckon he must have known everyone in that district. I mean, I, and, and oh, that, yeah. you know, I, I mean, can I just say something? I was mentioning your name to my mother and she thinks your family lived on Morning Star, which is one of the farms in Macheki. Did you live on Morning Star Farm? Uh, no, I, there, there was an Arnold family who was in the district. I'm not sure of the name of the farm uh, that they lived on. Right. They, they weren't related to us, but there was an Arnold family there, whom okay. I got to know, actually. Okay. Uh, I... Not while we lived in Macheki, but uh, when I moved, had moved to Harare. Right, okay, because Morningstar was owned by my relatives, my cousins, Robin and Joan Hume. Anyway, let's, yes, get, back to, let's get back to your parents. Tell us um, what their experience was during their time living in Rhodesia. I had the, uh, the advantage in when my father turned 70, and then when he, turned, when he had his 75th birthday celebration, I recorded an interview with my my dad and not everybody gets that opportunity we as children we often interpret what we hear from our parents or we decide what they thought at the time but it was really interesting and my father basically said that he fell in love with Zimbabwe or Rhodesia as it was then and um, he felt that he really belonged to the country um, my mum, little English girl, I suppose you could say, young English lady coming out, I think she found some challenges, but she also felt that she was very welcomed by the local community who helped her uh, in her daily life, and we formed some really long-term friends in the district. My father subsequently moved to Marandera, so we got to know both communities, which were... Uh, Similar but very different. You know, the, the small town of Macheki, uh, I think, is where my father's heart lay. That's where he got to know the country, got to know the people, got to know the local farmers. And, um, yeah. By all accounts, it was an amazing part of the world, actually. I, I don't actually know Macheki very well. You know, we lived north of... Salisbury, north of Harare, and never really got to that part of the world. Um, but we had lots of friends from there. Yes. Yeah. It was, a, it was an easy place to make and keep friends, I would and, say. And as a kid, I mean, uh, so were you born in, uh, in Rhodesia? I was indeed, yes. Okay, so you grew up amongst all in the bush and the copies and everything. I mean, you must have a few stories to tell us. Yeah, one or two. Uh, yeah, they come. <laughs> okay, go for it. <laughs> Very early memories I had was traveling uh, from place to place, like, for example, from Macheki to Marandero. It would be a 30-kilometer drive, but in those days, the roads were... We, there were some strip roads, and also we had to travel sometimes from farm to farm to farm to farm to get where we were going. One of the early memories I have is having to get out and opening the gates, separating the farms and keeping 
designed to keep the cattle where they should be. So uh, it often fell to the uh, youngest member of the family to do so. so I totally get you there. I was, I was the youngest in our family and I always had to get out and open those terrible old farm gates made out of barbed wire and metepes. Indeed. And uh, a lot of my memories come from when we returned. My sister and I used to go there in the school holidays. And um, my father had this saying that people would say, well, what do, you, what do you do in the country districts? It's Surely it's dull and boring and nothing much happens. And he would say, if you want to learn about life, just go and spend a couple of weeks in Macheki. So we did with some old friends of ours. We called them Auntie Mary and Uncle, Uncle Hilton. They weren't re relatives of ours. But we stayed with them and um, had a pretty free and easy run of the place. They had owned a farm and they moved into the village. And uh, yes, some escapades indeed. One that comes to mind is the case, the case of the poisoned strawberries. Ah, the case of the poisoned strawberries. Okay, I'm intrigued. It has become a bit of a family story now. <laughs> there was a lady called Mrs. Rich who was very proud of her garden and strawberry patch. Um, well, a young boy, I think, I can't remember his first name, last name was Gillespie, and I decided that these strawberries were just too good to leave on the stalk. So we went and gorged ourselves on these. When we got home, neither of us felt too good. We wouldn't dare admit it, of course, but uh, my pal spilled the beans, probably under some parental interrogation. So the lady, Auntie Mary, came to me and after a very brief interrogation indeed, I had to admit it. Not immediately, but when Auntie Mary repeated a question, it tended to bring out the yes. <laughs> <laughs> and the strange thing to me as a young child was how calm everybody was. It, this wasn't like at home or at school where in those days, uh, such a transgression may have been pinned on my tail. There'd have been sternness and perhaps annoyance at best, or even anger at, at such a, an escapade. Well, not so in Mecheki in 1962, and that was fairly unnerving for an errant child. I suppose they were, uh, the people looking after me were frightened by their, frightened that their lax country-style freedom would lead to my own illness or death by poisoning. But, um, so what was the poison? <laughs> it, was, it was an insecticide. I don't know whether it was DDT or one of the organophosphates that were widely used in those days. <laughs> And I heard that I might have to have my stomach pumped out. I'd never heard of that before. So I'm sitting there like a young child thinking, what on earth does that mean? Are they going to pull my stomach out and clean it and put it back in? Um, anyway, I didn't get as sick as the other boy, but uh, I did learn how to apologize on that holiday because I was taken over to Mrs. Rich's house where I was left in the room with her and she seemed pretty enormous while I was standing in front of her having to apologize. But she... She was very sweet and loving, and I think she was just so glad that I hadn't been badly poisoned or killed by this escapade, so <laughs> there it was. Fantastic. Well, I mean, you know, uh, I think kids were made of greater things back then. And, and, and you also mentioned in an earlier email something about a pig. Tell me, what, what was that? And a leopard, and a leopard as well, actually, come to think yeah. of it. 
Well, the pig was an interesting case. Uh, the neighboring farmers had got together and, and selected a pig for, for slaughter. Um, and that meant, of course, that on the following Sunday, there would be all sorts of roast parts of pig on different tables in the district. And I must say, our Auntie Mary did not let any part of the pig go to waste. So the head and the, well, every part of the pig was stewed up and made into brawn at the end of the day. Uh, pigs need to be well rested before slaughter. And there was this contraption, very much Rhodesian farm style contraption for slaughtering the pig. So he was put between the two little walls and there was a, a wooden, like a, it looked like a door to me that was held in front of the pig and then the, the pig was to be stunned and uh, slaughtered and then divided up amongst the neighborhood. Well, at the last minute, the farm boy who was helping with the door sort of sneezed or lost concentration or something and dropped the door down, at which time the pig saw his opportunity to get out and off he went. And I have vivid memories of this pig dashing and darting around this farmyard. <laughs> <laughs> this fairly young boy who was supposed to be holding the door, you know, looking, looking rather astonished and clearly seeing his misdemeanor. And I, I wouldn't be surprised if that farm boy is still running to this day to get away from what he'd, he'd done. <laughs> so the district went without their sausages that day. It had to be a bit of a delay because, as I said, the pig had to be calmed down and they overheat when they start running around. So <laughs> it, it would have made the meat very tough for the Sunday. So we put it off for a week and then the following Sunday, everybody had the, the roast pork on the table. <laughs> and and I mean, okay, so the wildlife, you know, back then, you know, for sure there would have been a lot of wildlife around that area. Yes, and um, leopards were a bit of a problem. They're beautiful animals and, of course, protected species, but uh, they did tend to roam around and kill livestock. <coughs> Excuse me. So... I knew that, I mean, as the story you told about the leopard, um, sometimes they had to be, or it was deemed that they had to be uh, killed. The leopard I'm, I saw was not causing too much of a problem, but there was a large copy, a large hill behind where uh, Hilton and Mary lived. Um, and there was known to be a leopard in the area. Well, another pal of mine, we were both probably nine, ten years old, we're climbing up this copy, and sure enough, we saw the leopard during the day, which doesn't always happen, they're more nocturnal. Um, so we just sort of wandered around and, and really didn't have much inkling as to how dangerous a leopard could be. Uh, came down and told Hilton and Mary about the leopard, and of course they reacted by going to try and find it and see what they could do, and I never heard anything else of it. Uh, but yeah, it wasn't uncommon for leopards to be roaming around the district, you know? Yeah, how beautiful. I mean, they're incredible creatures, aren't they? But they were yeah. a pest. I mean, my dad used to have to set traps to shoot them. You know, once, once they became cattle eaters, you know, you had to get rid of them. Yes, yes, mm. indeed. Um, you mentioned to me about Mrs. Rothel. Now, Mrs. Rothel was the 
first lady, the president's wife, wasn't she? Indeed, yes. And very elegant she was. Beautiful, yeah. Always incredibly well turned out. Yeah. And, you know, I have an interesting story, interesting story about Mrs. Rothel. Um, in the farming district of Tengui, where we had some very good friends. Now that's, what is it, north, northeast of Harare, Salisbury as it was. Uh, that area had been opened up for, as a farming, uh, commercial farming area after the Second World War. So on the 25th anniversary, there was a big shindig going on up there. And uh, not only the local farmers, but... Uh, bank managers and people to whom the farmers owed a lot of money were all, invi <laughs> all invited to this big party. And there were all sorts of celebrations going on. One of, one of the events that they had was a big parade and there was the, I think it was the Corps of Signals band were there in their white uniforms. And so was Mrs. Rothel in her very enormous white beautiful hat and coat. The Rhodesian flag at the time was green and white, and the crop sprayers did this demonstration in order to, to, to show us how crop spraying was done, those of us who didn't know. Um, there was this very elaborate trio of crop spraying pla planes came across. One of them was spraying uh, white colored water, and the other two were green. Um, when they came over the bandstand and just beyond the tent, the green spray landed on Mrs. Rothel. So she was covered head to toe with uh, green, green dots and she took it quite well, I believe. But the, uh, the Corps of Signals band was none too pleased <laughs> by, the, uh, by the, sort of the white uniforms being sprayed with green. As crop sprayers um, were completely being a good old, indeed, being a good old Rhodesian party, the way to deal with such a catastrophe is to feed and give lots of beer to the people who uh, feel as though they've been aggrieved, and that seemed to have worked. And indeed, they played very jolly music for the rest of the day and way into the night at the nighttime celebration. Maybe missing some of the notes they ought to have because of the, the libations given to them to to atone for the green paint, but. Uh, it was all taken in good fun and, of course, became a real talking point for everybody at the party. Well, and, and you know, Mrs. Rothel, as I said earlier, I mean, she was one of the most beautifully turned out women I've ever known. So, I mean, I suppose she did take it on the chin, really. Yes. Yeah. Maybe not immediately, but certainly in, in retrospect, she did. <laughs> You mentioned the Signals Corps, but um, you were actually in the Army Medical Corps. You know, when I was in the Army, I did a, we, one person from every unit. I was in the Rhodesian Light Infantry, and uh, um, the, we were broken up into units of about four or five people. And one person had to do a medical um, course about 10 days down on the Zambezi. One of the best 10 days of my life. The Medical Corps guys were some of the nicest, most fun people I've ever had to work with, honestly. Yeah, um, it, was a, it, was a, it was sad to have to do it and a lot of sad things that I saw, but the camaraderie and the, uh, the dis I think the discipline and also the, the training was wonderful. 
in the uh, medical corps. Uh, I know I was, I was part of it, but indeed, I think that is very true. Um, you must have seen a few things, eh? I have, and some of them are very difficult to, uh, to think about and talk about. You know, uh, we did a lot of good, but there was one particular occasion when there'd been a, uh, a battle in which several people had died, including a couple of, of uh, soldiers from the Rhodesian army, and I certified uh, one of the men dead. Uh, the, very <clears throat> the very sad thing about it was that he was somebody I had been at school with, and I didn't, because of the, the injuries that he had, I didn't recognize him on the battlefield. And uh, that was really hard to deal with, you know. There was also an occasion up in Matoko, which was um, where I'd spent a lot of, lot of that year, where I had to certify a couple of people who'd been caught up in a, there was a helicopter accident and the blade had caused a lot of damage to the bodies and that was really very difficult. Oh my God, but, I mean, how do you ever get over something like that? Yeah, it's interesting, I think we have, some protective um, influences in our lives. And I think youth is one, you know? Yeah. Uh, and, and just trying to, to bury the memory. And sometimes when buried memories come out later in life, they can be quite traumatic. And uh, I yeah. have had to deal with a couple of those in my existence. Well, absolutely. I mean, people back then didn't know anything about PTSD, did they? No. Uh, yeah. It was called other things and, and there was a lot of, I think, the idea that you pick up and, and, and get up and, and go again. But that's yeah. what human nature does, you know. We, we're pretty resilient. I mean, look at us now in this uh, COVID crisis. Well, <laughs> it's amazing what, how we managed to work, find new ways to do things. Well, absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm brilliant at making bread now. <laughs> Uh, now, now, Matt. I mean, okay. From the medical corps, you are now, and I don't, I don't know whether a lot of people know this who know you, but you are now a an ordained minister, a deacon. Should I be addressing you as Father Matt? Uh, you could call me Reverend Matt. Right, okay. uh, I'm not a. I'm not father, I'm reverend. So the diaconate is something that is open to, the permanent diaconate is open to men in the Catholic Church of good moral character, so they tell me, and various other things. Um, we have, we can be married, but once you become a deacon, you can then not be married. So my lovely wife, Liz, is uh, my partner in the diaconate, just as she's been my partner for the last 38 years in everything else I've done. And she, uh, she's sitting right here beside me, actually, while we're doing this interview. Uh, that's wonderful. Yes, and it may surprise one or two people that I knew in school and in the army and in my early life, but uh, I think the important thing is that as a deacon in the church, you're not uh, supposed to be somebody who's so different from everybody else. It's far better to be somebody who 
comes from the community, comes from the congregation and knows and understands them and isn't in any way above them, but is there to serve them. And so you, you're actually practicing, are you? I am, yes. Okay, how, how interesting. Uh, I mean, Bermuda, is it very Catholic? Uh, the, not particularly. Uh, there, we have a fair number of Catholic families here, most of whom actually are of Portuguese descent, because a lot of the, um, a lot of the Catholic families would have been from the islands of, uh, of the Azores. Portuguese okay. of the Azores, which I had the opportunity to visit for the first time this year, actually. That was wonderful. And it was just before the COVID crisis hit, and I got back from the Azores. Um, four days later, all flights to Bermuda were stopped and cancelled. So I was very fortunate to have got to the Azores and got back again. You and that, gave me, that gave me quite a, a good insight into... Catholicism in the in the Azores, which is the basis of our Catholicism here in um, in Bermuda. It's uh, I mean you you you're in a beautiful part of the world. Tell us a bit about Bermuda. I mean, as beautiful as it is, you've also suffered a few hurricanes recently, haven't you? Indeed, and they seem to be coming more common now. Some people would um, put that down too. Uh, what do you call it now? Global warming, climate yeah. change, something yeah. like that, or outside influences. That may be the case. Um, yeah, we've had a few very damaging hurricanes. I wouldn't say devastating in comparison to some of the reports of hurricanes down south from us and in the, uh, in the United States. Um, I don't underestimate the damage that individual people suffer on such occasions, but overall, I think the highest category hurricane out of five we've had here is a three, I think. But um, it's interesting, you know, uh, when a hurricane hits, uh, you tend to know about it in advance. So there's plenty of time to stock up on rum and have what we call a hurricane party, you know, find the safest part of your house and uh, yeah find your generator and <laughs> what what is the history of bermuda it's british is it uh it is we are let me get this right a british overseas dependent territory so it's okay. self-governing with a, a british governor and um yeah was it was it one of the big pirate enclaves in the 16th 17th century well you know that depends who you ask all i'll say is we had a <laughs> we had a nightclub when i first came to bermuda called the 40 thieves um yeah maybe there's a lot of things i can't talk about i told you at the beginning no 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 whatever happens in nightclubs stays in the nightclubs matt matt have you been back to zimbabwe recently or in the last couple of years uh, yes, I went about uh, four years, four or five years ago. Um, I keep in touch with uh, my medical school buddies and we we had a reunion. It wasn't the 10th or the 20th or the 30th, I can tell you. We had the reunion up at Victoria Falls. So I went back to visit um, at that stage. 
and it was a lovely experience. Um, at that time, my parents were in South Africa and some of my other family members. So we took a quick trip up to Victoria Falls and I didn't really spend a lot of time anywhere else in Zimbabwe, but um, we saw the falls and it was a fantastic experience as ever. Um, just a little bit sad to see the unemployment and the, um, you know, the economic decline in the country. Yeah. Um, very sad. Yeah. I mean, although uh, Victoria Falls itself is booming now, but the rest of the country, God, they, they just take one hit after another, don't they? Yes. And it's, Victoria Falls is a bit of a, an enclave, I think, of prosperity in a, in a fairly desolate landscape of economic decline. Absolutely. Um, and, and where did you meet your lovely wife? My lovely wife, Liz, went, or Betty, as she was known at the time, changed her name to Liz. Um, she went to school with my sisters and uh, clearly showed a very early interest in me. Uh, it took me quite a time to get the, to get the hint, but uh, <laughs> some several years later, after we'd become very good friends, we went on a date night. I didn't know it was a date till we were there. On, listen to this, Friday the 13th of November. So <laughs> off we went to the theatre. And at the end of, at the, end of the um, evening, Liz said to me this question uh, that a young man should really sit up and take listen to. She said, Matt, could you explain our relationship to me? Um, so I had some quick thinking to do. And seven weeks later, we got married, believe it or not. Wow, you're a fast mover, slow, slow to start. And then once you get going. Yes, a bit like one of those roller coasters taking forever to get up the, t <laughs> the top <laughs> and then swinging down in, in, in great style. Yes. Oh, Matt, I mean, it's brilliant chatting to you. Do you know, it's hard to believe, but it's already been half an hour. Um, I've loved chatting to you, but unfortunately, our time is coming up. Um, look, a million thanks for joining me on Conversations with Pete Wood. Well, thank you for, for throwing out the bait there by saying, what is it you say? If anybody has the courage to, to be interviewed, please drop me a line. And so I did. And it's, and so, it's, so, good to, to yes. it's so good to hear other people's stories and their angle and, um, you know, what they did with their lives. So thank you very much for sharing it with us. Yeah, very nice. And I've enjoyed all the, uh, all the episodes thus far. And I Good, feel well, I'm between my toes talking to you, actually. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, funnily enough, the mud on that picture on my book was from, north, well, was from the north of England somewhere. Uh-huh. Uh, yeah, smoke and mirrors, I tell you. Matt, <laughs> thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, Pete. Lovely to meet you. Take care. Okay, ciao. Bye. Well, wasn't that fun? That was Matt Arnold, or should I say, Reverend Matt Arnold, speaking to me in Bermuda. Well, that's about it. Thank you so much for listening to me. And remember, you can tune into my new episodes of Mud Between Your Toes via iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Blueberry, and Pocket Cast. 
Don't forget, you can always buy a copy of my book on both Amazon and Kindle. And I also welcome comments by email on mudbetweenyourtoes at gmail.com. If you want to get involved and you have a good story to tell about those years in Rhodesia, and if you're brave enough to be interviewed for Mud Between Your Toes, feel free to write to me. Goodbye.